Gareth Jones on Speed Speed News. Red Bull Racing are boycotting Sky F1's coverage of Formula One. Christian Horner described Sky's reporting as disrespectful to the Milton Keynes team and went on to say, yeah, but no, but yeah, but Max is defo the champion in it, and Ted Kravitz is stupid and ugly, and I saw him smoking behind the bike sheds, and he's not coming to my birthday party. Hello, welcome to a bonus episode of Gareth Jones on Speed. Yes, only a week after the last one, because the last one was a short one with just me and Sarah. I thought I'd give us a bonus episode with Alex Goy. Hi. And Zog. Hello. And I have to say, we're recording this on Halloween, so it's entirely possible that this recording is going to get interrupted somehow by doorbell ringing. For small children, I've turned all the lights off and I'm talking quietly so they don't know I'm here. I'm being a Halloween humbug. Terrible, aren't I? I've been a Halloween humbug for years. I usually pretend I'm not in if I am, in fact, in. Yeah. But I'm always up for a good Halloween party, on the other hand. Um, yeah. If someone's throwing a good costume bash, yeah, I'm, I'm up for that. Hey, I went to two Halloween parties over the weekend. I'm all Halloweened out. That's why I'm locking down the house from Halloween intruders tonight. Hey, how are you guys? Alex, you've been away. Where? I decided I was going to have a long weekend with some friends away in Bilbao. Because every year we go to a city that we've not been to before or have been too fleetingly and want to explore. We go there normally with the view to sample food and see all the wonderful sights that the city has to offer. What inevitably happens is we end up getting faced three or four nights on the bounce and return husks of people. So yeah, I got home about three o'clock this afternoon and I'm exhausted. So after this, I'm going to go straight to bed and quite right, well, die. So it's basically an extended bar crawl with a few 364-day breaks thrown in. Yes. That's basically what this is. Pretty much. It was great, but I'm exhausted. There was once a time when I could do three nights on the banks and have an absolutely riotous, wonderful time and feel fine on a Monday afternoon. I want to die now. <laughs> okay, well, you, you die, but we'll give you a soft in. Okay. You relax there, whilst Zog has brought something to my attention earlier on today ah, that I didn't yeah, know about. Yeah. That, yeah, this is the nearest thing we're going to get to a public service announcement on Gareth Jones on Speed. Tell me about this. Well, yeah, Alex, if I was to tell you that there'd been a 259% increase in the number of motorists penalised for breaking the speed limit in London... What would you think was going on there? Have we all suddenly got reckless? One of three things, having been one of those motorists this year. Uh oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe you do have the insight, the knowledge. Well, one of three things. Either people have come out the other side of all the lockdowns of the pandemic and forgotten how to drive, which, having been anywhere near the M25, eh, quite likely. Yeah, possible. Two, people are just speeding more paying less attention, whatever. Or three, someone somewhere in a system has done some maths and changed some numbers. Yes, well, in fact, it is answer number three that turns out to be the correct answer, though the other two have merit. <laughs> yeah, it turns out that the Metropolitan Police, <laughs> quietly, without announcing it, have reduced the leeway that you get when they decide whether you're speeding or not. Okay. So, you know, as we all know, or as... Most of us know in any area of the UK where there is a posted speed limit, in practice, you won't get 
a ticket unless you exceed that speed limit, that posted limit, by a certain amount. Just a point of note that if you happen to find yourself on a speed awareness course, the man will tell you that this is not true. Even though the news story you sent around earlier says that it very much is and there's evidence for it. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah. Maybe he didn't know. Maybe he wasn't being honest. Who knows? He was very keen that we didn't speed again, you see. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, we know that in practice and uh, no matter how formal or informal it is, there's a margin of error. If you're in a 30 mile an hour speed limit zone, in practice, you won't get a ticket unless you exceed the speed limit by the usual guideline is... 10% plus three miles an hour. Can confirm 37 miles an hour is enough to get you a speed awareness course. Right. Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> whoops. Even less now because it is now 10% plus two miles per hour in London. Mm. Not sure about anywhere else. So by quietly taking one mile per hour off the point at which the penalty is triggered, the number of people getting tickets, not surprisingly, skyrocketed. Mm because I've certainly done this myself, we get used to how much we can push that limit if we're in a hurry and we feel it's safe. You know, we know that we can go a little bit over the speed limit and so we often do. But yeah, public service announcement, the amount by which you can exceed the speed limit without expecting a ticket has now dropped. Certainly in London, maybe keep an eye out for that elsewhere. But yeah, if you're a London motorist, be aware. It's intriguing, Jacques, this, because... I didn't know about this, and surely, I mean, it's not a change of law particularly, is it? It's a subtlety, it's a grey area. But aren't authorities obliged to make it known what the law is? I know ignorance of the law is no excuse, that's what they say. But the law is don't drive more than 30 miles an hour. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. As Alex says, the the law is don't drive more than 30 miles per hour. Yeah, if that's the posted limit. My assumption here is that we are given a certain amount of leeway, a certain amount of grace by the authorities that enforce those speed limits. And I'm pretty sure that 10% plus two or three miles per hour is not written down anywhere in legislation. It's a regulation. It's a rule, I assume, that's produced by a committee or a body that has the authority to produce that rule. They're allowed to make that kind of judgment. And, you know, honestly, I can absolutely see why people might feel aggrieved if they suddenly find that they've got a fine because they haven't been told that that margin of error, that that leeway has been reduced. But I actually don't think there's anything terribly dodgy or fishy or terrible about the Met doing that. I mean, they were, you know, sort of giving us a bit of a break with the leeway that there was. You run the risk of getting a penalty if you break the speed limit. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple. If you don't want a ticket, don't exceed the speed limit. But yeah, the reason a lot a of rule. people have been getting more tickets is because they've exceeded it a little bit too much. Yeah. Here is a fun-ish speed limit fact. The speed limit for most cars was raised from 4 to 20 miles an hour by the Motor Car Act 1903, which stood until the 1st January 1931 when all speed limits were off because, according to Lord Buckmaster, the existing speed limit was so universally disobeyed that its maintenance brought the law into contempt. Aha! Mm. However, in March 1935, I believe it is, the Streetlight Act, or the Streetlight Law, came into effect, and that was the first blanket speed limit for Britain's built-up areas. So you know how it's a general rule now that unless otherwise signposted, if you see streetlights, it's 30 miles an hour? Yeah. That has its basis in 1935. Cool. Ah, 
that was where that came from. They shorted it out a long time ago, Boris, didn't they? They thought <laughs> about it then. They did. Marvellous. So thank you for that update. Something to be wary of. Anytime. I've got an electric car coming, which I'm going to do a little bit of driving around London. Then I'm off up to Wales later this month. So I should be wary of not to drive more than 21.05 miles per hour at the max in 20 mile per hour zones. And then I know I'll be safe. Which are increasingly common around our way. Yeah, plenty around here. Yeah, I'm getting used to it. The meat and two veg of this show. I think it's all meat, really, if you think about it. Yeah, it uh, is. We thought we'd look at three of the greatest brands in the car universe and take it just a snapshot at what each of them are doing that we find interesting or exciting at the moment. I'm going to kick off because this got my attention this week. I've been waiting to see it for a while and finally it emerged in its racing livery and that is the new Ferrari 499P hypercar or hypercar, we should say really, hypercar for Le Mans because hooray, Ferrari are back in the top class at Le Mans. Now, I've got to get your reactions initially, both of you, to this. Alex, you've seen the car? I have. Bear la machina. Oh, my. It's very pretty, isn't it? It is, isn't it? I don't know anything it about really the specs is. or anything like that because I was away binge drinking while all this was going on. So I poured over the pictures on Twitter. Now, I'm openly not really a Ferrari person, but... Oh, that's going to look good. That's going to look good at Le Mans, doing Le Mans things. Yeah, big fan of that. Yeah. Very big fan of that. I mean, we often get excited when we see a new Le Mans car because we're invested at Le Mans and we don't mm. get top-class new cars quite as often as we used to these days. So yeah. one that turns up in this immaculate paint scheme, the use of the yellow and the red reminds me of the 333 SP, probably my favourite prototype of all time, certainly my favourite livery. Mm. I'm back in that car. It's going to be run by AF Cos. Did you know that? They're actually running the cars for Ferrari. So whilst it's a Ferrari design chassis and the engine is a unique engine, it's a stressed motor. They haven't just lifted a motor out of the 296 or something. It is a proper stressed motor and a unique bespoke Ferrari hybrid system as well. It really is a Ferrari. Unlike some of the LMDHs, which are, you know, bolting your engine to someone else's chassis, really. Yeah, well, that's one of these things about it. And first of all, I absolutely agree that it looks sensational. Yeah. I mean, mm. really, we've been waiting a long time for Ferrari to come back into endurance racing at the top level, if they were going to do it. And my God, they have absolutely nailed it. If you wanted to see a fabulous, beautiful new Ferrari as they're offering for next year, and you had quite high expectations, you know, you just couldn't be disappointed by this. It looks so so beautiful. I think there are three ways in which it achieves its beauty, Zog. First of all is the nose suggests a road-going Ferrari. You know, it doesn't look like your more traditional LMP car, really. It's got that sort of 296 shark quality to it. Mm -hmm. The mounts for the rear wing are raked back at, I don't know, more than 45 degrees. And that makes it look more racier and Hot Wheels than many other LMPs do. And then thirdly, the air intake on the top of the cabin and the vertical fin that you have to have on a Le Mans car to stop it from slewing sideways and therefore flipping is in black carbon. Yeah. 
which kind of either accentuates or hides it. I can't work it out. Most cars paint them in body colour or a complementary body colour, but seeing it in black makes it look more aggressive, mm. sporty, GT. And in combination with that glorious red livery, it could have been from the 60s, that yellow stripe down the middle. I'm in love. Yeah, yeah. It's gorgeous. I mean, what? What? Sorry, yeah. that sounded very um, Daisy from Space. There, gorgeous. Ooh. It's flat. <laughs> yeah. So, what's it going to go up against? Because it's, it's Ferrari. We've got the Toyota one, which is okay well. to look at. Lamborghini is on its way. The BMW with the massive kidney grill, which looks a bit odd. Cool, but a bit odd. Yeah. Who else have we got? We got the Peugeot, the 9X8 Ooh. without its rear wing looks gorgeous as well. It's a really good looking car. And there's going to be a new Toyota, by the way, for next year's WEC in Le Mans. It's going to be the GR020, not the GR010, Zero which was the last yeah. one. Yeah. Which will have the same running gear, but whole new aerodynamics. So that's going to look different. Okay. And we might just clarify this is one thing that, that's worth clarifying here. The Ferrari 499P is an LMH yeah. car. It is one of the two categories within hypercar. the more hypercar class. And so, yeah, the other LMH entries are, as you say, you know, yeah, Toyota, Peugeot, uh, Glickenhaus also, maybe Van Wall slash Bicolors. We're not sure what's happening there. But it's interesting that Ferrari have gone with the LMH subset of the rules, whereas Porsche, for example, Cadillac and BMW have gone for the LMDH subset, which means that they're getting a chassis from somebody else, whereas for LMH, you build your own chassis. They're doing that so they can run in IMSA. Exactly, yeah, because in the LMDH rules are kind of a continuation of IMSA rules. The LMH are more of a continuation of WEC rules, so... Whilst a lot of the teams, Cadillac, for example, will be in both WEC and IMSA, at least in the first year or two, not all of the teams are going to be in both series. They'll be targeting one series or the other. In a sense, it's a shame that Ferrari aren't going up directly against Porsche, let's say. Mm -hmm. Although these are subclasses within Le Mans Hypercar and, you know, balance of performance will be used to even them out. So the bottom line, though, and the important thing is we're going to have an incredible lineup of names that we want to see racing in the Le Mans hypercar category in the next couple of years. It's going to be mega. We've missed one out, which I had no idea about until I was looking into this today. Isotto? Isotto Franchini yeah. got a car called the Tipo 6, Tipo Say, isn't that right? The Type 6. Williams Advanced Engineering did the aerodynamics on it. Michelotto Automobili designed the rest of it but i know nothing about this and where's this come from suddenly and they haven't even announced who the engine is going to be yet so i think the chances of this making le mans or wec this year are almost zero and i'd say the same for the bicolis van wall entry who knows yeah bicolis threaten every year to do amazing things and barely make it to the grid do they bless them but yeah you're absolutely right we're about to enter a golden age, someone commented on Twitter the other day when I posted a picture of this car, a golden age of endurance racing with some amazing brands. And Penske are running one of the Porsches, aren't they? I thought they were running the whole lot. Penske are running one and Jota are running another. Oh, okay, okay. 
as far as I know. Yeah, Multimatic helped with that, didn't they? It's a Multimatic chassis for the Porsche. They're pretty good. Multimatic, didn't they do work on the Ford GT most recently? I think that was theirs. Multimatic did the stage two because the road going Ford GT, sorry, the race car Ford GT was retired and they said, we're going to do another one. And it was 800 horsepower series two, I think they called it. That was Goodwood 2019 that came out. Mm -hmm. I've heard sod all about it since. But that was mm. Multimatic. Well, they're running some top cars next year. So I'm assuming we're all going to be at Le Mans, aren't we, boys? I mean, that's the plan, yes. That is yeah. the plan. See you there. Can't wait. Gareth Jones on Speed Speed News. The Ford Motor Company has shut down Argo AI, its self-driving technology unit, saying that creating self-driving robo-taxis will be, and I quote, harder than putting a man on the moon. Really? Come on, Ford. We put humans on the moon in 1969. You've had 53 years of technological development since then. So just how hard can it be? We're looking at some of the greatest brands in the car universe. We've already talked about what Ferrari have impressed us with at the moment. But one of the all-time greatest brands, even people who don't know about cars will know this brand, have come up with something rather special recently. They are Rolls-Royce, and the car has got a great name for a program recorded on Halloween, hasn't it? It's called The Spectre. <laughs> Alex, have, have you been near one yet? Yeah, I have. I went to see it at the factory the day before the news drops. That was the 17th of October, so... Ooh. As we stand now, two Mondays ago, last Monday. I'm so confused. Yeah, so I've been near it. It is massive. It is aggressively yellow. The interior has cream seats with a sort of purple and yellow detail on them, which is what I would describe as brave. But it's a fascinating thing. They haven't revealed too much about what it's powered by, how quick it's going to be, anything like that, for the moment. It will be, I mean, it's safe to assume, sub five seconds, not to 62. Top speed will be something miles an hour, but you don't need it to be 150,000. The only bit of kind of proper tech stuff they did reveal, but at the same time didn't. No, I tell a light, they have some targets. So the target is not 62 in four and a half seconds. Target power, 577 brake horsepower, and target torque, 664 pound-foot. The only bit they revealed that they also didn't reveal was how big the battery is. Because it's an EV. We haven't said this yet. This is Rolls-Royce's first EV, mm. and it's a coupe that looks like my favourite Rolls-Royce, the Wraith. It's got the same sort of profile at the rear. I think it looks like a Wraith, and Rolls-Royce keeps saying, oh, it's a spiritual successor to the Phantom Drophead, and I'm looking at it going, no, it's a Wraith. It's a Wraith, yeah, you can see the lineage, I think. And I love it, I love it. You know, I think Rolls-Royce can do no wrong, because 
do what you want. You Rolls yeah, Royce. Well, you disagree, Zog. Yeah, yeah, I do disagree. They certainly can do wrong, but they've done this right, I think. No, it's a looker. Mm. You've mentioned that it's an electric vehicle, an all-electric vehicle. Yeah. Yeah, well, we might just say that Rolls Royce have said that with this model, from now on, they are only producing electric vehicles. Yeah. Rolls Royce has a purely electric future. Think about it, electrification is a pretty good fit for Rolls Royce, I think, because absolutely it's perfect. Rolls should always be completely and utterly silent. Yeah, you don't buy a Rolls Royce to listen to the engine. I mean, the black badge cars do make a bit of noise, mm-hmm. but it's like a gentle grumble of a V12, mm. and you could get away without it. This thing's going to be monstrously quick. Whether or not there'll be a black badge, don't know. Assume so, because that's what they'll want. But the bit of tech they have revealed, but at the same time haven't said explicitly, it'll do 323 miles on a charge, which is, according to a friend of mine who used to work near there, it's about what a Wraith customer could get out of a tank. Hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. But it'll do 2.9 miles per kilowatt of battery. So... Bit of maths, 111 kilowatt hour battery in its body under its slab. So it's massive. It's got a lot of battery to draw on. Is it a skateboard platform? It's under the floor. It is. It's part of the structure. Yeah, I think I read that it was 100 kilograms of battery in total. So getting on for a tonne of battery. battery. That's quite a lot of... (laughs) It's quite a hefty motor car. It's a lot of motor car. But, you know, being a Rolls, you can kind of get away with that because they're all big and heavy anyway. As far as cool stuff that's on it. So, you know, you used to be able to get, or you still can get, a sort of starlight in your ceiling. Yeah, yeah. You can get that on the doors now as well. Oh, disco. I do like that, actually. I think some people probably view it as maybe a bit sort of tacky. Well, Zog, you know you can actually spec it so that the map of the stars yeah. is the view from the point on Earth where you were born on the day that you were born. You can actually choose Which that. makes it even cooler. No, it's fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, but all those little twinkly lights around you. Yeah, I think it's great. And I'm, yeah, now it's on the doors as well. Beautiful, nice, like it, like it. So how will Rolls-Royce users use this car? They will charge at home, won't yeah. they? Because they've got yeah. an estate with a, I don't know, a, a horseman who will wind electricity into the car with his hands for you or something. Isn't that right? I was lucky enough to be in a roundtable interview with Torsten Muller-Ertverse, the most German man in the world. He's very lovely. And he's the head of Rolls-Royce now, isn't he? Here's the man at the top of the tree at Rolls-Royce. How people are going to use the cars, they're going to use them like they do their Rolls-Royces. So they will be obviously amazingly well looked after. They will be loved. They will be specced just as someone asked the question of, oh, what happens when the battery stops being useful? And Torsten basically went, we'll just we'll put a new one in because that's yeah. what we do. <laughs> we are Rolls-Royce. I'll take care of that, sir. The really interesting thing was he mentioned, we learned a thing, Rolls-Royce owners a part of an exclusive club, and that club has access to an app that Rolls-Royce talks to them on and they can interact with one another on, and it's called Whispers, which is amazing. Although it does have, like, a dodgy lap-dancing club, to be fair. (laughs) (laughs) Up next on the stage, Torsten! Oh, (laughs) Oh, spirit of ecstasy jokes abound. (laughs) But, basically, Mulevers was saying that he's had people asking for EVs for so long, over and over and over again, since EX102, which I spoke to someone else there, a lovely chap called Dave Monks, who worked on that and basically went, 
the technology wasn't ready at all. People wanted it. This was their concept car in 2012 or something. Yeah. And it had yeah. sort of aerodynamic wheels, almost like uh, Formula One wheels, proud of the body with shrouds, as I remember. Oh, no, that's the EX103. Oh, forgive me. The 103 was a sort of modified, futuristic version of a Phantom. The EX102, it was a Phantom with electrics in it. Uh-huh. It looked like a Gen 7, no, Series 8 Phantom, whichever one they relaunched were good with. Yeah. Um, he was saying that people weren't ready for it. Some would hand over the money and go, yep, I want it now. And obviously Rolls-Royce said no. Some went, let us know when you've got a better idea of how it's going to work. The really interesting thing about it is that they had a sort of launch event over a course of, you know, weeks, months, whatever, for 300 Rolls-Royce clients. And they got 300 orders. Wow, everyone wanted one, 100%. Now, I did a little bit of maths on this because they haven't announced firm prices, but they've said it'll be somewhere between the Cullinan, which is under £300,000, and the Phantom, which is over £300,000. So, roughly about three hundred grand, right? Zog, you're really good at maths. What's £300,000 times £300,000 times £300,000 is £90,000, £90,000,000. 90 million pounds. So Rolls Royce made 90 million pounds. Right. <laughs> like that. Bear in mind, it's very rare that a car leaves Gaiden less than three, four hundred thousand pounds these days. Mm. Like it's, it's almost impossible. We have to subtract from this their development cost for the car. Yes, true. But I'm guessing there is a huge amount of commonality with the BMW i7 because no. they've stretched like no come on no no they- no no, no. now oh. now I, th- this conversation was had yeah everyone i spoke to was very careful not to say yeah of course bmw co-developed this with us do you have any idea how expensive this would have been both brands around the same time went we need to start thinking about a big electric flagship we need to start thinking about a powertrain for it so both firms went to work on a similar shared goal. And then there was a point at which one would go one way and one would go the other. So there will be some commonality in there. You know, it's, it's a bit like when people say, oh, well, you know, a ghost is just a seven series in drag, which isn't strictly true. Mm-hmm. There are some shared bits. So the development work, a lot of it, for the very early days, the really expensive bits, that was common goal, let's learn together. But there are so many differences between the vehicles in terms of just the you know, very yeah. basic things, you know, dimensions, the weight you have to move, yep. you know, so many things that, yeah, it would be hard to see how you could have a lot of direct commonality mm. between them. But yeah, the shared development makes sense. If they didn't do that, that would be moon howling. Of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, why wouldn't you do that? Their specs in terms of performance are similar. The BMW i7 xDrive 60 mm. has got a combined WL. TP for miles per kilowatt hour of between 3.2 to 3.4. Okay. And the electric range on the i7 is between 360 and 387 miles. So that would be a weight difference then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. The heavier it gets, the more batteries you take on board, you start to lose efficiency. There's a sort of an optimum middle ground, isn't there? I would think too small, inefficient, too big, inefficient. I guess that this is where an electric car designer would be useful to join the conversation. But the amount of power that you get out of your motors and the amount of energy you can store in your batteries are both going to scale linearly with weight. 
pretty much. I think so batteries, certainly motors, maybe slightly less so, but basically power and energy capacity are going to scale, I think, pretty much directly with the weight of the thing. I'm not sure there's any inherent reason why being bigger or smaller in this context gives you more or less performance. Except there's a certain amount of basic weight you have to carry around in terms of wheels, crash protection, mm. mm-hmm. people and cargo. Either way, the roller, somehow bigger, somehow heavier, with commonality of bits in some stage of its development, it's a very cool thing. And the fact they've sold them all so quickly, or sold so many so quickly. Has it got induction charging have they talked about that or is it just a plug-in cable they haven't talked about any of that i think it's just going to be a cable you'd expect it to be no effort sir just drive over your pad in one of your garages and we'll take care of it you know they've missed that haven't they i know there's no standard for that at the moment and i know it has been agreed on a standard for induction charging and they run the risk of going so early that they wouldn't be able to use other induction charging public facilities but if you're a rolls you're gonna have your charging at home as induction charging wouldn't you like i say with being rolls there's less of an issue of saying excuse me sir or madam you need to buy this very expensive system to go along with your car as well as the very expensive car you know you're not going to have as many complaints as you would from the general public however this is going to be one of the vehicles that is at the upper end of the amount of energy that you need to pump into it when you're refilling it yeah inductive charging relative to a cable isn't a great way to shift a lot of electrons a lot of power very quickly. So I think there would be an issue in any case with a vehicle like the Spectre of any inductive charging that they could offer just being way too slow, I assume. That's the best way. Intriguing. Talking about battery charging, I want to get on to our final brand now, but just briefly about battery charging. Two things I noticed recently. There's been a great leap in the understanding of battery conditioning to allow you to charge batteries more quickly. And I think someone in Boston has come up with a battery with a heating element within the battery, which will allow you to charge to 80% in 10 minutes as opposed to 40 minutes for the equivalent battery. Having said that... The only way to get loads of energy into a battery is to chill the cable, apparently. So there's two things happening. We are chilling the cable. Uh, Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, I've got to stop you there. That statement you just made does not sound right to me. Sorry, not the only one, but the way to allow... Forgive me, Zog. One way. At the moment. (laughs) One way to increase efficiency. Correct, Zog, thank you. One way to increase the rate of charge is to chill the charging cable. That's because you reduce the resistance in the cable. Yeah. Because as your heat metals up, the resistance increases, you reduce the temperature, the resistance decreases. So, yeah, and this works for any electrical system. Yeah. So we're doing two things. We're chilling the cable and heating the battery. There must be a balance there somehow. Our final great brand, and Zog, this is your territory, really. Say no more, but what the heck have Bugatti done recently that impressed us? That's not a cynical question, by the way. That I think I would ask you to, well, what you think Bugatti have done recently that impressed you, because we kind of got onto this when we were doing our pre-show chat, because I think I mentioned that there was a Bugatti Rolls-Royce Spectre connection, which is that the Spectre has pretty big wheels, you may have noticed. Yeah, they are quite large, yes. They're 26-inch wheels. The last coupe that had that size wheels was the Bugatti Royale. 
Oh, really? <laughs> but in introducing the Spectre, the Rolls-Royce has rather beautifully provided an oddball link to the fabulous Bugatti Royale. Bugatti is an interesting company because it's had three incarnations, I think we can say. The Bugatti of the early 20th century was the company that made these achingly beautiful, wonderfully engineered, lightweight sports cars that you could drive on the road, take to the racetrack and then win at the weekend. And also then the Bugatti Type 35 won a crazy amount of races. I think until the Porsche 911 came along, it was the model of car that had won more races in motor racing than any other. And that Mark I Bugatti ended more or less about the time that they introduced the Bugatti Royale, which was incredibly expensive, just as the world was going into a massive depression and they couldn't sell enough of these cars and the company went bust. And then there was the 1980s revival of Bugatti with the rather wonderful EB110. Fantastic. This is the the Romano Arcioli period. And I have to big up your personal friend who is Elise Arcioli. Elisa Arcioli, what a wonderful human being. We were lucky enough to rather drunkenly meet her earlier this year. And she's Romano's granddaughter isn't she is that yeah. right yeah or grandniece granddaughter Grand, yeah, uh, granddaughter yeah we met her at the lotus launch she's absolutely smashing and a big mate of our alex's anyway sorry Zog. and i really like the eb110 yeah man and it's a vehicle that a lot of people in the know regard today as being i guess you know, you know one of the supercars that holds up really well in retrospect that you know when you go back to mm. you drive it take a good hard look at it you know actually it stands up really well but that version of the company didn't last all that long and and then we had Mark III Bugatti, the VW Bugatti, when it was acquired by the VW Group. And they then gave us the wonderful, fabulous, most recent chapter in Bugatti history with the Veyron, the Chiron, which are... Incredible. Appropriately, yeah, incredible. Appropriately crazy, ridiculous, insane cars. They are ludicrous. I was very lucky. I had a go in the Veyron Grand Vitesse Supersport. Oh, world land speed record car thing a few years ago 2015 i think it was and honestly it's one of the most incredible pieces of engineering i've ever been anywhere near it's just staggering and it's so fast it's mind-blowing the only thing i've been in that's faster is a rimats nevera and that had what 800 more horsepower and the torque was instant so it was so fast it was unpleasant Whereas the Veyron, oh, it's just amazing. If I wasn't quite so broken from being on my holiday, I'd be far more verbose, I promise. You mentioned Rimats there, and you might say that we've now entered Bugatti Mark 3A or 3.11. Ah, yes. Because Bugatti is now a partnership between Rimats and Bugatti. They've sort of surrendered 50% of everything to Rimats in return for VW having some ownership of Rimats. It's a very complicated deal. So Bugatti are going to be electric cars from now on, right? Alex, you must know about this. I don't entirely know what the the plan is. All I know is that the W16 is probably not much longer for this world. The Bugatti is doing lots of celebration vehicles which are costing 16 17 and 20 million quid a go which is just obscene wow how the hell do you sell something that expensive uh... yeah we build one of them and tell the community that if you don't have this one you won't be cool or something (laughs) they they sell straight away i love what bugatti does because of the standard of the engineering the quality of everything they do you know you do get into 
like an, an Aston, for example, and you do wonder if something's going to fall off it sometimes, whereas you get into Bugatti and you know that the thing can do 250 miles an hour without any worries at all. It's really quite, quite incredible. And bits won't fly off it, but they cost money. Like the Veyron was, what, £1 million when it came out 10 years ago? No, 20 years ago nearly. That actually gets into an interesting thing because we've just been talking about the fact that Rimatz has taken over or uh, got a partnership with Bugatti. Ben Oliver, the writer, says, you know, most people when they're 33 quite like the idea of owning a Bugatti. Matteo Rimatz at 33 owns Bugatti. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice work if you can get it. Yeah, yeah man. But Rimatz is quite a force in the automotive world and has been for years. You know, they, he, have been making bold steps and creating some wonderful vehicles and really, from a very modest start, mm. have become a hugely powerful, influential mover in the car world. And the Nevera that you drove, for example, Alex, is that a two million quid car is that roughly yeah it's the most expensive the most powerful the most everything it's ludicrous how fast that thing is it's got 500 horsepower per wheel (laughs) that's not enough i'm sorry (laughs) right right no you're gonna need more than that it's absolutely mental that thing by all accounts and by all the reports i've seen it yeah it's just truly truly mind-melting acceleration yeah it'll do it'll do a quarter in less than nine seconds Sort of low eight, I think it is, and not to 62 is sub two. I launched it, properly launched it on an airfield, full permission, off you go. The first time, like, genuinely pushes the breath out of your lungs because you're moving quite fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you get to the quarter mile, you're doing 130 odd miles an hour, and you're like, Jesus Christ, it's ridiculous. And then, yeah, you do it again, it's unpleasant. <laughs> so you're paying two million pounds for something that you are not going to enjoy using at its full potential <laughs> hey i know a lot of people who've paid a lot more bugatti has always been a brand that is right at the top of the pile just think about how much money you could spend on a car if you wanted to spend a lot of money on a car a bugatti has always been one of those that's right at the top of the pyramid of if I want to spend an obscene amount of money on a car, you know, Bugatti is one of those names that's up there. But now they're in bed with the Rimats, and that Rimats Nevera is a £2 million car. I mean, I mean, well, what does this kind yeah. of type sort of mean for, say, Bugatti's positioning? What does the Rimats-Bugatti collaboration mean for the future of Bugatti? It guarantees their future because in markets where you're not allowed to have internal combustion engine super performance cars anymore, Bugatti can continue with their tradition for excellence and ultimate performance meeting legal requirements. It guarantees the future. You've also got to remember what Mm. Rimatz and Bugatti does. Like The headline figures are they go really fast and they're really expensive. Mm. But... When you look elsewhere, so a Bugatti comes with this amazing atelier attached. The heritage, the build, the toys inside it are just mind-blowing. Whereas the Rimats, it's not more basic because the tech is so incredible and the finish of everything in it is mega. But they are very different propositions. One, I think, is more of a running shoe. And the other one is, you know, a very lovely loafer that you happen to be able to run a marathon. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely put. I think it was the future of the two, whereas I wonder if one will slowly merge into the other. 
and the other will remain as a sort of consultancy kind of thing. But, you know, whatever Mate Rimatz does, touches, turns to gold. Mm, he yeah, is, in, in his words, he basically is Croatian industry. Well, that's him. So, All power to him. Respect. All power to him, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm wondering, we've discussed the three super brands today, Ferrari, Rolls-Royce, Bugatti. If you were yeah. going to produce, you know, an ultimate performance, ultimate luxury, ultimate brand... Where else would you go? What could you revive? Hispano Suiza? Someone like Someone that? Someone has. Yeah. And that's really, really powerfully ugly. Yeah. Oh, well, that'll knacker it. But you see, yep. you know, you've got to prove yourself, haven't you? You've got to take that brand and do it justice. And I think all mm. the three of the cars that we've talked about today will do justice to the tradition of the brand. The Ferrari, the 499P, is a race car. It's a Ferrari. I do love the fact that in any language other than English, 499p just sounds beautiful. For us, it's just less than a fiver. <laughs> <laughs> the cheapest Ferrari ever. Cheapest All right, I'm ask you to make a decision. Speak quickly now in the remaining 10 seconds, boys. If you were going to choose one of the three cars that we've talked about today, I mean, any Bugatti, really, because we didn't really name a model, which one would you go for? Zog? I can have any Bugatti. Oh, yeah, the cars we've discussed today, you might argue. Oh, the cars we've discussed today. The missing Type 57 Atlantique, please. <laughs> well, as we discussed the Type 35, I'm taking the Type 35. If I have to have a modern one, I'm taking the Ferrari. Alex? I'll take the Spectre, please, Bob. Good choice. I've been soul-searching here, trying to think, oh, well, do I really want to drive a monster like the Ferrari? Or do I want to drive... The Spectre. And you know what? I still don't know, but I do love a Rolls Royce. It could be the Spectre. I really am really struggling. So not for the sake of choosing a different choice for you. I'm going to go with the Rolls Royce. There we go. We're all happy. Thank you, boys. Say goodbye, Alex. Bye. Say goodbye, Zog. Goodbye. And we'll be back with another On Speed in two weeks' time. See ya. For information on how to contact the show, see pictures, get song lyrics, follow us on Twitter, find our Facebook fan page, or to sponsor the show, go to GarethJones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Wizbang. Gareth!